I want to say good morning to you all. <clears throat> what a blessed opportunity to be here in the house of the Lord, amongst the saints. As we know, it is a very special day. It is a very important day for to us. It is the Lord's day. What beautiful understanding that we have. Even though the world perhaps may take a pause for other reasons, we understand that the first day of the week has been set aside for us to come and worship God in spirit and in truth. All month long, we've been discussing judgment. We've been discussing this topic. And in discussing this topic, We've perhaps fallen short of defining that very word. Judgment comes from a Greek word, krisis, which looks a lot like the term that we use in our modern English, crisis. Many times we may look out into the world and we might turn on the news and there may be a banner at the bottom of the news declaring this crisis or another crisis, just depending on the day or the hour that you so turn on that proper station. But all things considered, when we understand where the world lies, when we understand and look at the wickedness that has permeated society, when we look out at all of the individuals not focused on doing the will of God, we certainly know that there is a crisis. The low Nita lexicon would explain this crisis or this judgment as a judgment or a decision and even an evaluation. Furthermore, it would give a little bit of context explaining that it is a righteous judgment or a able to judge according to true standards. When we think about who we are in Christ, when we think about what God has done for us, when we think about that man, Jesus Christ, that was sent into this world, we can thank God that we have the ability to be judged after true standards. We can even thank God that the world will one day be judged after standards that are true. When we look out in society, perhaps we have or we've fallen into the trap where we've had much confidence in our judicial system. Where we think that everything is going to go right simply because someone is seeing a trial amongst the jury of their peers. Perhaps we have so much confidence in the states and in governors that we think that God's judgment is going to be declared in that arena. But even sometimes that would fail. When I think about this judgment, I think about going all the way back to the book of Ezra. In Ezra, the seventh chapter, as many of you have read before, you think about the children of Israel coming back from that return of exile, coming back or during that return of exile from their Babylonian captivity. When you think about the decree 
that the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, would make? When you think about the confederacy with that man, Ezra, the priest, being able to instruct the people of the Lord properly. You may think about those words as Ezra there. A ready scribe of the law of Moses, as verse six would say in Ezra, the seventh chapter, which the Lord God of Israel had given and the king granted him all his requests, according to the hand of the Lord, his God upon him. And there went up some of the children of Israel and the priests and the Levites, the singers and the porters and the Nethanims to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king. He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was the seventh month or the seventh year of the king. And upon the first day of the first month began he to go up from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem, according to the good hand of God upon him. Ezra had his heart prepared to seek the law of the Lord, to do it and to teach Israel statutes and to teach Israel judgments. But pertaining to these judgments that Ezra was teaching, as we drop down a little bit in the context, we see, according to Ezra, the seventh chapter, looking now at verse number 23. Artaxerxes was giving to Ezra, writing to Ezra to be able to explain this to the people. It says, whatsoever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done for the house of God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Artaxerxes understanding who the true God of heaven was, who the true God of all of earth was, able to humble himself And to allow the children of God to be able to hearken unto his commandments. Understanding that there was a standard. Understanding that there was a law in which the children of Israel needed to follow. Ezra being a ready scribe of the law of Moses. Being a priest able to explain these things to the children of Israel. In verse number 24 it says, Also we certify you. That touching any of the priests and Levites and singers and porters and Nethanims and the ministers of the house of God, it should or it shall not be lawful to impose toll, tribute or custom upon them. Thou, Ezra, after the wisdom of thy God that is in thine hand, set magistrates and judges, which may judge all the people that are beyond the river, all such as know the laws of thy God and teach ye them, know them or teach ye them that know them not. Whatsoever, or rather whosoever, will not do the law of thy God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily upon him. This is Artaxerxes, acknowledging this standard, acknowledging the importance to be able to follow after the commandments of Almighty God, working with the children of Israel to instruct them properly. He explains to them, That whoever will not do the law of thy God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily upon them, whether it be unto death or to banishment or to confiscation of goods or even to imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, which hath put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, hath extended mercy unto me before the king. And his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. And I was strengthened as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. And I gathered together out of Israel the chief men to go up with me. We see Ezra 
having the latitude, having the ability, given the leniency from the king to be able to follow God accordingly. As these children of Israel had endured that 70 year period in Babylonian captivity for the rot, the wickedness that they had wrought, for giving in to those nations that they were not supposed to. Then being released from that captivity, able to go up to Jerusalem to worship God properly, to follow God. And we see that Artaxerxes, according to verse 26, would even explain this judgment as they are to follow God. He says, let judgment be executed upon them speedily. When we think about the crisis of what's going on in the world, when we think about why men have turned their hearts from following God, why men seem to get so involved with every wind of doctrine, every sway of persuasion according to this world, we truly see a crisis. Perhaps we, in our faith, would grow a little bit fatigued or grow a little bit exhausted in seeing how individuals would prosper. We sing that song farther along. Where that verse says, then we do wonder why others prosper living so wicked year after year. We think about the lives we're leading or at least the lives we're attaining to in Christ Jesus. We think about all other individuals who are going about their merry way, not even regarding what God has set forth from them. Perhaps in disgust, we grow fatigued at this thought. We grow fatigued at this notion, but it is important to know that God is vested in executing judgment. Perhaps when we think about this, we think about all of those individuals prospering in their wickedness, putting their hands to do these things, which they are not to do. We wonder, what does God think of that? We wonder what it's going to look like in the end for those that do not obey God. I think about what the Ecclesiastes writer would write. When it comes to this execution of judgment, when it comes to the lack of it being done speedily, at least on our terms, you can see how the world would go grow faint. You can see how Christians would be discouraged. But look at Ecclesiastes, the eighth chapter. Ecclesiastes, the eighth chapter. In Ecclesiastes, the eighth chapter, that man Solomon would write on this behalf. You might remember in chapter 8, verse number 10, the preacher would say, And so I saw the wicked buried, who had come and gone from the place of the holy. And they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This is also vanity. In Ecclesiastes 8, chapter verse number 11, Solomon gives some insight on what would transpire with mankind when wickedness is not dealt with in a quick manner. Perhaps this is the reason why many people lose hope or faith in government. But in verse number 11, it says, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Much like what Artaxerxes was giving to that man, Ezra, that speedily, Judgment needed to be executed. We would even see here that Solomon, through all of his wisdom that was given to him from Almighty God, 
He would explain what would happen to mankind. What would transpire if a sentence wasn't executed against an evil work speedily. The heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner do evil a hundred times and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before him. But it shall be not well with the wicked, neither shall he prolong his days, which are a shadow, because he feareth not before God. When we take the words of Solomon, we understand that we not need not to grow weary in well-doing. We not need not to falter in our faith just because there's others that would fall short of the glory of God. Just because there's others that are rotting wickedness and they are getting by with it. I remember being a young kid, having a brother, getting in trouble for some of the things that I would do from my parents. But then seeing my brother get by with some of those things and would not get in trouble, you would start to feel some type of way for the lack of better words. This is what's happening in society. We certainly remember, according to Romans, the 13th chapter, why rulers are put in place. When you think about the officers in this world, when you think about those who are to be able to put down and suppress the evil works, these rulers are not set up to suppress the good, but the evil. Nevertheless, we can see where mankind can fall discouraged. When things aren't being executed speedily, when sentences aren't being executed according to true standards or according to righteousness. Thank God we have this position in Christ Jesus. Thank God we understand that God, as we've already established, has a righteous judgment according to 2 Thessalonians, the first chapter and verse number five, has given us that manifest token that through our tribulations and through our trial, through a little bit of of enduring grief. That we have a God that's going to recompense all the evil that was done to us. Not only to us, but all the evil that was done in this world. As we are trying to lead these quiet and peaceable lives to follow after him. As he has given judgment to that man, Jesus Christ. The brother just read unto you in John the 5th chapter. In John the 5th chapter. Giving us the blueprint. How to pass from death unto life. You might remember what he just read in John the 5th chapter. Looking at verse number 24, as the Bible there would say, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word, believeth on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into the condemnation, but is passed from death to life. But if we continue to read what Jesus is saying, he says, verily, verily, I say unto you that the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the son of God and they that hear shall live. For as the father hath life in himself, so hath he given the son to have life in himself and hath given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. When we look at John, the fifth chapter at verse number 27, when we go all the way back to verse 22, we understand that God, the father has committed judgment unto his son. What a glorious understanding, because I remember another place that the Proverbs writer would write all the way back in the 29th chapter of Proverbs and Proverbs 29, looking there at verse number two, where Solomon would say, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people would mourn. I wonder if it's connected. I wonder if it's the lack of sentences being executed speedily. 
We need not to grow weary, Christians. Even though the sentence against wickedness is not executed speedily in our mind, we remember what Peter would say over there in Second Peter, the third chapter, making reference to a day of the Lord being a thousand years with man and a thousand years being a day that God's time is not our time. We remember in Revelation, the 22nd chapter, that lamb, that man, Christ Jesus is saying, surely I come quickly. Surely I come quickly with the reward. Surely I come quickly. And we know that when he comes back, he's coming back to execute this judgment. He's coming back to hold people accountable according to the true standard that God has given him. This is very important. When we understand who's on the throne, we don't get caught up in all of the winds of doctrines. We don't get caught up with too much that the world is doing. We stay consistent as Christians. On the Lord's day, we come to worship. It doesn't matter what's going on or what man would declare a holiday or this day or that day. We understand that the Lord has a day. And the Lord has a day where we come together to worship him. When we look at that man, Jesus Christ, many people, according to the course of this world, would be celebratory if they even can celebrate it anymore. But they would think that they'd be celebratory of his birth. Thinking about in Isaiah, the seventh chapter, specifically at verse 14, when there was a prophecy about a virgin bringing forth a child into this world. They would try to use man's wisdom to combine it into a day and think that it's righteous. And then they would try to say that they just love the Lord and they have so much vested in Christ and his birth. But what's really important about Christ is what happened in his death. Over and over and over again, once Christ was born, they were so committed to putting him to death. It would start in Matthew, the second and third chapter. Don't you remember that that man Herod was ruling when Christ was born? So much so that he was troubled, so much so that he would send his wise men over to find where it was that Christ was going to come from. He told them to go to the law and say, where is the Christ supposed to come from? They said it was supposed to be Bethlehem as they would go back and cite Micah, the fifth chapter. But you might remember that God would make known unto Joseph and Mary into a dream and tell them that they have to go into a different land to be able to preserve the life of this child. When this child was an infant, they were trying to put him to death. The death was important, but it had to be a specific death. You might remember in John, the eighth chapter during Jesus's ministry at about verse 59, when he was explaining that before Abraham was, I am. You might remember in that context, those people didn't like that. They're saying this man's not even 50 years old. Who is he to say that before Abraham was, I am. He's not that old. He doesn't have that much gray in his hair. And he's trying to explain to us that he's older than Abraham. But they're missing the point. They're missing the point of who he was. They're missing the point of his authority. They're missing the point of how God has committed to him judgment. That he was the true word of God abiding with God since the beginning. Nevertheless, even a couple chapters later in John the 10th chapter at about verse 31. Just like in John the 8th chapter at verse 59, those men took up stones to be able to stone Jesus. But that death wouldn't have been a sufficient death. It was going to have to be a death that was prescribed in the scriptures. It was going to have to be a suffering and agonizing death that even Jesus would prophesy about. In John the 8th chapter at verse 28, John the 12th chapter at verse number 32. Going back to verse number 36, you would see in John the 12th chapter, Jesus again would hide himself from those individuals as he's talking about his father. 
He explains in an earlier text in John 10 verse 31 that I and my father are one. They don't like that, do they? The Pharisees don't like that. These individuals who are opposing Christ, who are not receiving his words, they don't like that. They don't like that he's making himself equal with God. But they want to put him to death. The thing about that, they took up stones to cast them at him, but it wasn't his time. As Jesus was prophesying, even in that context of John, the 12th chapter, specifically at verse 32, where he says, if I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. It wasn't simply going to be in his birth. Really, the only individuals that should have been familiar with his birth would have been his Jewish brethren, according to his flesh. But the people that should be invested into his death should be every known person to man. Because in this death, in this death of the cross that was going to come, this death of the cross that was going to be according to what the scriptures prescribe. Isaiah, the 53rd chapter in the 22nd Psalm, this suffering servant. This man, Christ Jesus, was going to have to be put to death. Why? Because he lived a life of righteousness. He lived a life according to the true standards. He was saying that he and his father are one. They didn't like that. They put this man to death. Why is this important to us? Let's draw this together. Let's bring this all together from crisis and judgment being executed speedily. Because as he was put to death, as he was hanging there on that cross, shedding his blood for all of the mankind... For the redemption. For the redemption of sins. For the forgiveness of sins. Understanding that our draw to come to God is going to be through him. That's what John the 66, excuse me, the 6th chapter at verse 44 would say. All men being taught of God, being drawn of God, have to come through Jesus Christ. In order to get to God, we have to go through Christ Jesus. It is so important. When we think about the state of affairs in this world, when we think about the heart of man being set to do wickedness, not being set to do after the will of God the Father, we look at that man, Jesus Christ, who is right now on the right hand of God, who has right now been given the authority that that man, according to Proverbs, the 29th chapter, verse 2, is a righteous man, who is a righteous man in authority. We have that notion, we have that understanding. What an important understanding for us. Because in the hereafter, we have the promises associated with God. The promises associated to us of eternal life. The promises associated that Christ is one day coming back to execute judgment. As you might remember, in Jude, in the book of Jude, the first chapter. This judgment that's coming against all ungodliness. You remember Jude is writing of these things. And specifically... We see in Jude, the first chapter, looking at verse 14, where it says in Enoch also, the seventh from Adam prophesied of these saying, behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints to be able to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed and all of their hard speeches, which they ungod the ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth to speak in great swelling words, having men's persons in aberration because of advantage. But beloved, remember ye the words which are spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How that they told you that there are there should be mockers in the last time who shall walk after their own ungodly lusts. 
These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the spirit, but beloved, building up your own selves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. We ought to keep ourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus unto eternal life. The Lord is coming back. The Lord is coming back to execute judgment on all the ungodly. We can have confidence in that. We need not to let our hearts grow weary. We need not to let our hearts be emboldened to execute wickedness in this world. Just because a sentence is not executed speedily on our own volition. But you need to be familiar with what the Bible would say in Romans, the second chapter. In Romans, the second chapter at verse number four, this long suffering, this forbearance of the Lord would work the goodness, would prove his goodness because he's long suffering towards us so that we can come to repentance. That's the same thing that's mimicked in second Peter, the third chapter at verse nine. We need not to count the long suffering of the Lord as slackness. He's not willing that any should perish, but shall all come to repentance. We need to have our minds focused on him. We need to have our minds focused on his son. We need to be knowledgeable that his son is coming back to execute judgment. Even though the world is not executing judgment speedily any longer, or at least it seems like, we understand that there is one righteous judge who sits on his throne, who is coming back to redeem his church, who's coming back to execute judgment on all the ungodly. We need not to worry. We need to just be so focused on following after his will and his way. Surely the world would have their priorities this day. But our only priority, as it is every single week, is to come together to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. We were citing in Romans, the eighth chapter, about our triumph and our the love that God has showed towards us, that there is no separation. That's what Paul concludes the chapter in Romans 8 and says, there's no separation from the love of God. He loved us so much, John, the third chapter in verse 16, that he sent his only begotten son into this world. He sent his only begotten son in this world so that we can pass from death unto life, as John, the fifth chapter, verse number 24 would say. We have to hear him. We have to understand who he is. We have to believe on him and we have to live lives according to the will of his father. What beautiful understanding. Execution of judgment is one day going to come and it's not going to be a judgment according to man's judgment. It's not going to be a judgment according to a jury of your peers where 12 men or women would decide your fate, if you will. But it's going to be a judgment according to righteousness. And that judgment we need to be so vested in. We need to be understanding of and we need to walk in our life according to what God has for us. If any are outside the body of Christ, why do we say the body of Christ? Well, the Bible would say in Ephesians, the first chapter, verse number 22 and 23, that Christ is the head of his church, which is his body. So in order to be a part of the body of Christ, you must be a part of the church of Christ, the church that the Lord purchased with his own blood, Acts 20 and 28. How must you become a part of that church? It comes with hearing the gospel. That's what the Ephesians writer would write in Ephesians, the first chapter, verses 13 and following, that you have heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation after which you have believed and you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. There's a process to becoming a Christian. There's a process to becoming a part of the Lord's body. There's a process to be a part of a heavenly eternal kingdom that has no end. Time would fail me to talk about again, Jeremiah, the 33rd chapter declaring that eternal, that eternal kingdom that is going to come into this world, that righteous branch that is going to judge 
execute justice and judgment, this Lord, Christ Jesus, coming into this world. You must hear the gospel of that man, how he went about doing good. And the greatest thing he did was not just in his birth, according to this flesh. It wasn't just in healing. It wasn't just in all of the wonderful miracles that he did, but it was in his death. Because in his death, he was able to establish an everlasting kingdom. It's a kingdom that has no end. That's why he looked at Peter in Matthew, the 16th chapter and 16 and following. He said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. And upon this rock, this rock being the confession that he made that he is Jesus, the son of God. Upon this rock, I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It is going to be a kingdom with no end. This process of becoming a part of God's kingdom, of becoming a member of the church of Christ, becoming a part of the body of Christ. As the Bible says in Acts 2 and verse 47, they're added unto the church. In order to be added unto the church, you must follow the prescription that God has given us. We don't go and join any church. We're a part of the church of Christ. We become members after we heard the word of truth, after we believe it. As the Bible has said in Acts 15 chapters, Peter is preaching to the Cornelius' household. He says, the Gentiles by my mouth, they heard the word and they believed. You have to believe that he is the son of God. You have to come repenting of your sins. The Bible would say in Acts, the third chapter, verse 19, Peter in another passage saying, repent and be converted. And Luke, the 13th chapter, verse number three, Jesus would say, except you likewise, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Repenting of our ways, repenting of those wicked ways. We need not to be in those individuals or in the number of those individuals that have something against the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes back. We need to repent of those wicked ways, repent of those ways that we've heaped up in our own minds to be righteous, that God has not called righteous. Nevertheless, come confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Matthew, the 10th chapter, verse 31 and 32, or 32 and 33, rather. You confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father, which is in heaven. We need to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We sing that song all the time. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. You soldiers of the cross. We need to stand up for Christ Jesus. We need to let the, the world know where we stand. We need to let the world know we do or don't do certain things because we belong to a greater cause. We belong to the kingdom of God. We belong to Christ. We need to confess that Christ. Confess him before men so we can be confessed before God in heaven. We've heard the word. We believe it. We come repenting of our sins, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we go down in the watery grave of baptism. We tie that right back into Ephesians, the first chapter. Because in the watery graves of baptism, we can be planted. We can be planted into his body. According to 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, verse 13, by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. It's not the body of Paul. It's not the body of Peter. It's not the body of any of the apostles. It's the body of Christ. Because Christ was crucified for us. It was in his blood that he shed that was able to redeem us and forgive us of all sins. We are baptized, Acts 2 and verse 38, for the remission of sins. That body belongs to Christ. Romans, the 6th chapter and verse number 3, we're baptized into his death. Just as we were baptized and buried with him in baptism, we can be raised to walk in the newness of life. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, would explain that there's one body, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. And those need to happen according to the scriptures. They need to happen according to the scriptures because when we're baptized into Christ, as Galatians, the third chapter, verse 27, would say we put on Christ. 
we put on Christ and we put on Christ to walk in the newness of life. No longer minding those things of the flesh, crucifying our lives to those things that are fallen short of the glory of God, that do not meet the muster. But we walk in the newness of life, waiting for that great and notable day where God is going to send back his son to execute judgment on all the ungodly. Let's be found in the number that are walking according to his will. And let's be faithful unto the death, as Revelation, the second chapter, would, and verse number 10 would say. I believe the song is Rock of Ages. The song that we're singing is Rock of Ages. I think about that Rock of Ages. In that first verse, it talks about the blood. It talks about that blood flowing down. That centurion soldier, the day Jesus Christ was crucified, in John the 10th chapter, or excuse me, John the 19th chapter, at verse 34 and 35, he put a sphere in the side of our Lord and Savior. Blood and water flowed down. It's that blood that redeems us. It's the water that washes us. We need to be washed have all of our sins forgiven. Now is the time as we together stand and sing a song of the Savior's invitation.